Hello, my name is Sam Clements and welcome to The Love of Cinema, a Picture House podcast proudly supported by Kia, powering independent cinema. Welcome to our May edition of the show. This is our monthly review show where every month we handpick just a few films. There are far too many released each month to cover the whole slate, as they like to say in the biz. But what we do like to do is to pick a few key titles and have a discussion about them. And we like to have that discussion with two new film critics every month. And we sort of pass over to them to watch the films and then uh, let us know what they think. On this month's episode, we're actually joined by two brand new film critics who've not been on the show before. So a very big love of cinema welcome to Jane Crofer, the editor of Total Film and film critic at large, Jamie Graham, who you can read in Total Film uh, and in uh, in many other places. And in fact, if you are listening to this as a podcast fan, you may have heard Jane on the Total Film podcast. I do recommend checking that out out. So we've got Jane, we've got Jamie, we've also got two very special guests, uh, two filmmakers joining us to talk about their work later in the show. First up, you'll hear uh, Jaumari Helander, who's made a really fantastic action movie called Sisu. And later in the show, uh, we've got the uh, upcoming horror maestro, Ari Aster, to talk about his new film, Bo is Afraid. Anyway, those are coming up later on. Don't worry about that. First of all, let's go over to Jane and Jamie to talk about our first film of the month, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, the third film written and directed by James Gunn, and the closing film of the Guardians of the Galaxy trilogy. This film is in cinemas right now, and let's hear what Jane and Jamie made of it. I'm going to tell you something. I'm Star-Lord. I formed the Guardians, met a girl, fell in love, that girl died, but then she came back. Came back a total dick. Oh, please. He left out some important information, but that is the gist of it. So, Jamie, we just watched Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Indeed. They've, they've been very uh, categorical about this. This is the last Guardians of the Galaxy film. What was it about and did you like it? Did it work? Well, it is about, it's more personal than the last two, but it's very much a mission where they're kind of saving themselves and looking into themselves and exploring their own trauma rather than just trying to save the universe, as it were. But it starts off with Warlock, who's a fan favourite from the comics, played by Will Poulter. He attacks the Guardians on their home of nowhere. And during this attack, he really grievously injures Rocket, who looks like he's dying and he has only 48 hours to live unless he is saved. And the only way to save him is for the Guardians to go across the galaxy on an epic odyssey to basically attack the high evolutionary who's the big bad in this film like Thanos or ego in the last film and he holds the key both to rocket's past his origin story which we learn in this film it's very much about rocket and how he came to be but also holds the key to how to save rocket because this character the high evolutionary is basically dr moreau in space 
he loves creating hybrid creatures and he also has a massive god complex that he likes to destroy entire civilizations and rebuild them to be better that he's obsessed with perfection which is a really nice counterpoint to the guardians of the galaxy because they're all about dysfunction and their chaos energy yeah their chaos energy and their dysfunction and they're flawed so it's a really nice counterpoint so that essentially is what the film is about it does immediately get to rocket being in peril and you're like oh my god is this no spoilers obviously but because we know it's the last one that does make you think oh my god anything could happen here we could lose people along the way so it does really try hard doesn't it i felt to get you crying it didn't quite work for me it felt a little over egged but i think if you're really into this series and you really love this ragtag gang of people that you would be emotionally invested and this could be quite an emotional roller coaster for you well i'm the same as you jane that emotionally it didn't quite land for me and it should have been because i love animals and rocket is very much in peril and the themes of friendship the guardians coming together you know that always hits me deep the theme of friendship but it didn't quite land because like you said i think they over egged it they kind of laid it on with a trowel a little bit the emotion but having said that there's a lot of things i really liked about this film i love the kind of just how bonkers it is that you know this is a 250 million dollar blockbuster and you've got organic planets in it which are really kind of quite icky oh really icky and really weird and imaginative and all the designs are really imaginative james gunn who's the writer director of this and the previous two i do think that he's a bit of a visionary in some ways that i love you know he's always got this bold imagination he blends snark and sentiment he's quite anarchic and he brings all of that to the table again so i love the imagination of it i love the fact that it's completely bonkers there's some great comedy in it there's a wonderful scene with drax and a couch that is all i'll say which, which is laugh out loud funny but the emotional beats which this film is very much about being the last one and sort of waving farewell they didn't quite land for me but like you said other people may be absolutely in floods of tears. And let's talk about the other Guardians, because for me, in terms of emotional arc, I thought Nebula was amazing in this. I felt like she really was the accumulation of everything that she's been through with all of the adventures we've seen her on. And so now she is this quite fully rounded character. She is uh, bolshy, she is kick-ass, she is stern, but she's also incredibly empathetic and she's strong and brave and vulnerable, all of these things. So I, for me, I really enjoyed seeing her now at the stage she is in this film. Also Groot, I mean, obviously Groot's been through various uh, (laughs) iterations and he goes through some more here, but you get a payoff here, no spoilers, but you get a payoff here that if you've enjoyed Groot and his one line version of I am Groot, I am Groot to mean everything, that is quite the fist punch in the air, isn't it? Yeah, they they all get their moments in the spotlight. And Groot, like you say, we've seen him as baby Groot. We've seen teenage, moody, sulky Groot. And now this is a different Groot who has some wonderful moments. He also has some great action where he absolutely kicks ass in a major way. I really like Gamora in this one, actually, but it's a different version of Gamora because, of course, she died in Infinity War. 
And this is a kind of earlier rendition of her. So she has no memory of the Guardians. She has no memories of Peter Quill. So Peter Quill, Acker Star-Lord, is kind of really teary and grief-stricken because he's lost his great love and he's talking to Gamora and she just doesn't recognise She doesn't him. care. She doesn't care. Doesn't give us stuff. And yeah, and it's a lot tougher version of her that she's just really like, yeah, whatever, Peter, get lost. And it's really quite funny, but also quite touching in a way. Yeah, yeah. Let's go somewhere new. See worlds we've never seen before. So that we can feel inspired. Whether you're sitting in a cinema or in one of our cars, inspiration comes when we feel something new. That's why our electrified range is designed to take you on inspiring journeys. Kia, proud supporter of independent cinema. Kia, movement that inspires. Well, thank you, Jane and Jamie. And uh, I haven't seen Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 yet, but I am recording this before the upcoming bank holiday uh, in early May. So I am going to watch that this weekend on the biggest screen possible. Up next, we've got a little interview with a director who made a really fantastic film called Sisu. We're not reviewing Sisu on the show because it's getting more of a sort of a specialist release, but it will be playing uh, at some uh, picture house cinemas. So do check your listings if that's the case. And the film is out on the 26th of May. So something coming at the end of the month. For what it's worth, for what my opinion is worth, this is a really fun action movie, sort of in the mold of The Raid or Bone Tomahawk or something like that. It's quite bloody, it's quite violent, but it's got some really, really great action and it's a really propulsive plot and uh, features an incredible lead performance from uh, like a, a 70 year old Finnish actor called Jorma Tomia and he's wonderful like I mean he's doing a lot of quite full on action scenes and, and sort of fight choreography and I was blown away I guess if you saw John Wick recently this is kind of a nice uh, follow on uh, from that I've seen some reviews uh, saying you know it sort of features uh, John Wick's granddad or, or, or something like that so uh, so yeah so that's Sisu and here is Jaumari Hillander director and writer of the film I was blown away by Sisu, I won't lie. That was a thrill ride of a cinema experience. Fully adrenaline pumping uh, sort of stuff. This is something you've wanted to make for a while? Yeah, I've had this weird idea of doing my own action film since I was a kid. Basically, after when I saw First Blood, I've been preparing for this for a very, very long time, basically like 37 years or something. <laughs> And I'm really glad to be in a position that I actually got to make one. The idea came something like four years ago, basically. I would hope like that every movie idea comes as clear as Sisu did. Because when I had the idea, it was like a minute after that, that I basically knew what I, I want to do. But it took a couple of years after I got the time and angry enough to write it so when it came to you what was the sort of first image that you saw was it your main character was it an action scene what you know, what was the first thing that came into your head i imagined him finding a lot of gold and then i had this really clear image of him being on a horse facing a tank that was so clear how cool i think that will look 
and well, it's in the film. It's a stunning scene in the film as well. That was one of the moments that made me sit up in my chair, as so many, mm. <laughs> as so many do. We don't often see World War II as an international audience depicted from a Finnish point of view, and we also don't see many movies about the end of World War II either. It feels like it's quite an interesting place for us to join the story. I basically learned a lot about World War II after when I started to investigate all that shit went down back then. But of course, this is not a documentary of any kind. Basically, what's accurate in this film is the year and the place. And away we go. <laughs> yeah. It's got this really nice structure to it. I really like the chapter headings. Was that always something that you were going to put in? No, it actually happened while we were editing. Somehow in the beginning of the film, in some point, when I was editing the first 10 minutes, felt uh, like too serious in a way that I wanted some like clues to the audience that this is not going to be like a drama about a guy who finds gold. So the chapter heading in the beginning, it somehow helps me establishing the style of what's going to happen. And also uh, there wasn't that a voiceover in the beginning either. And that voiceover really helped you to have that kind of like old trailer kind of uh, voiceover. That's basically the reason why I wanted the chapters. In the film. It does have this sort of like a classic action movie look and feel. And I think those chapter headings, you know, they remind me of martial arts movies. It's got this sort mm. of, you know, like, uh, yeah, like it's, it's this classic cinema approach, which I loved. I really love like, like a movie called the Bridge of River Kwai. There's some really cool fonts and and uh, style there, which which was one of the refer- references of of how to make this. I think you've got uh, you've got such a good central performance in this film. It's quite a lot, I think, for a basically a silent character to convey for ninety minutes. You know what's going on, but Jorm is so physical. You know, like his face says a lot and his body language says a lot. What did you talk to him about, you know, when he came on board and, and how did you prepare for for this character with him? Well, we know each other for a long time. So he basically knows what I want and I know what he's capable of. And um, and uh, the only challenge there was like, you know, I was thinking that is he physical enough because he's over 60 years old that can he actually pull this off? Because when he read the script, he, he understood that it won't be an easy easy job to do. But I'm lucky that he was in a great shape and still is, that he really pulled it off. But I can tell you that it wasn't easy and for any actor to be silent for, for 90 minutes and still be like really interesting and, and the guy who's carrying the whole weight on his soldiers. I think he's so good with his performance. Even when he's digging up the gold, I'm fully invested in what he wants, mm-hmm. what the character's doing, where he's going. If it was a prospecting movie, I would have been happy with that. But then the mm-hmm. Nazis show up and all hell breaks loose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it sort of jumps up a notch. I do think probably about 20 minutes into the film, we're seeing some pretty full-on action. And then it just keeps you know going on and on and getting bigger and, and more elaborate. How did you plan the fighting and the action scenes to keep the audience on the edge of their seat like I was? Well, I had one rule, which I think is a good rule to have, but it's it's a tough rule to follow. And the rule is that when I had an idea of 
how to survive or how to kill a Nazi. If this is the movie's length, and I'm starting from here, and I have this idea here, usually I would it would be easier if, if I can't top this one. I would just put it later on in the movie and, and uh, make my job easier. But I had this rule that I'm not allowed to do that. I have to bang my head to the wall as long as it takes to have a better idea <laughs> later on and, and, and build it up and uh, go higher and higher with the stakes, what he's capable and willing to do. I think that was a really good rule to have because it, it really, I think, what I've been in the screenings with the audience, that how surprised they are, what's, what's actually happening in the film and how they really can't guess beforehand what's going to happen next. I think that's what you're right. You know, it's, it's important to keep the audience guessing mm. and, and engaged. And it's incredibly inventive. That list of ideas must have been huge <laughs> early on. Well, it wasn't that huge. Everything came together when I was writing. And, and because I didn't have like a stack of ideas how to <laughs> do this, but I, I invented a problem and then I had to invent how to get out. In the script, when you're writing a fight scene, do you have a lot of detail there or, or does that come out later in storyboarding or in sort of a, a, a rehearsal with a, the fight choreographer and the stunt people? What's the, how, how do you build up a, an action scene? I was pretty ready when I wrote the script with, with all the stuff. Of course, there were like details. And if we think about the first fight, I only had like a couple of things I really needed to have there, which one of them is the first knife thing which really like I wanted to show the audience and the Nazis something that they really couldn't expect that okay you are playing with a dangerous guy now <laughs> like this is how it's gonna be now but of course there's a lot of like how to take a weapon or something like that which is like comes later on but the main ideas were there in the script already I really liked how at one point, quite early in the film, I think the Nazis are on the radio to their commander and, and they say, there's this guy, you know, what should we do? And, and they're told by the, their, their officers, the, their boss, to leave. You know, you don't have any chance. Mm. And that, that just helps us <laughs> an audience to be like, OK, I mean, this guy, I mean, this guy is serious. It reminds me of the classic scene of First Blood where the General Troutman comes in and, and says in the end that don't forget one thing. A good supply of body bags. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love a film where it's like we're on the road and everything is constantly moving, like a wagon train or something, you know, like we're, mm -hmm. we're sort of constantly moving there. But you also have the, the women characters sort of in the truck as well, who you know, we pay off later in the film. So there's lots of different stakeholders in here. There's like, it feels like there's lots of plates spinning uh, to keep the tension going. How did you, how did you sort of finesse that uh, in the screenplay to make sure it paid off when the film was complete? Well, it's, it's nice to, when you're writing the script, you can always go backwards and change something in the beginning to make it feel better in the end. It's a tough job, but it really paid off this time. And it didn't take so much time that I'm used to, like, usually I'm writing like years when I, I do a script, but this happened in, in a couple of months, which was like so cool. Oh, wow. It was meant to be, clearly. <laughs> yeah. When, um, when the film was finished and you, you played it to your first audience, can you remember what that experience was like, um, you know, sort of seeing how people were responding? Well, I surely can, and I will never forget it, because that's something which is really important to me, to be in an 
audience to experience the whole because you are in that point you are already so bored yourself with everything what's happening there and you've seen it all like millions of times and and, and when we were in in toronto at the midnight madness and there were like something like thousand people watching it and and they really went crazy when <laughs> when the shit hit the fan so i i was so happy i was so happy in that situation and have been in every screening where I've been in all over the world of of watching Sisu. It's crazy how how the audience like reacts. I think it's it's great when a film gives the allows the audience to engage like Sisu does, mm. and uh, we're really looking forward to playing it at Picture House Cinemas. So thank you so much for your time today, John Murray. Cannot wait to open Sisu, play it on the biggest screen possible with a big audience. It's going to be a great time. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you, Jao Mari, for dialing in and talking to us. Uh, once I saw the film and, and I heard that we had the opportunity to uh, speak to Jao Mari, I, I couldn't say no. That's a marvellous film coming at the end of May. Something a little bit sooner now, a film coming to cinemas on the 12th of May is The Eight Mountains, a film that won an award at the Cannes Film Festival in 2022, directed by Felix van Groningen and Charlotte van der Merch. This film is fantastic and I was really excited to see that Jamie and Jane had also watched this movie. So let's hear what they made of it. So Jane, our next movie is a Belgian stroke Italian entry, The Eight Mountains, which won the jury prize at Cannes in 2022. Tell us what this one's about. Oh, gosh, I I don't know if I can talk about it without like feeling a bit wibbly. Yes. So this is about uh, a man remembering his childhood in the mountains when he was a a young boy from Turin who would go to the mountain area of Bergamo in sort of north of Italy. And there was one other boy in that village who was there, Bruno. And Bruno has uh, grown up all of his life in the mountains and is a mountain boy. He uh, knows how to do everything from milking cows to hiking to, you know, just living up there and living a rustic, lovely life. And this becomes a sort of romantic ideal for this boy. And he remembers his encounters with Bruno over the years from the first meeting to their days as adults. And it's just a catalogue really of Boys growing up, it's a it's about friendship, it's about relationships with fathers and disappointment of parents. It's about embracing nature, about going off grid, about being rustic, and about pursuing what it is that you love and what the price of that might be. So it's about a lot of things, although obscenely just a beautiful, beautiful film about mountain living. And I loved it. I do think, though, if you go and see this film, you need to have a piece of Italian cheese in your hand whilst (laughs) you're watching it, because there's lots of eating of gorgeous cheese and um, salami and Italian wine. It's a very sort of sensory film. Did you love it? I absolutely adored it. I started tearing up about halfway through and I didn't stop, but it really profoundly moved me. And I don't get that a lot with cinema. I have a sort of slight sniffle or swallow a little little bit, but I don't kind of outright cry. Only a few films have ever made me cry. And this one did. It really hit me hard. I thought it was the majestic scenery was amazing to look at. There was a purity to the filmmaking. It was very unhurried and sort of still camera, quite poetic. The deep performances, 
I just absolutely adored it. I mean, do you think at two and a half hours, do you think it kind of lived comfortably in that space? I could have had more, frankly. As you say, that it's so beautiful to look at. That area of Italy is gorgeous. I've I've been to Bergamo and sort of seen the mountains from Bergamo. It's a beautiful place uh, and it's beautifully captured. And the fact that it feels lived in, and that's because, you know, the, the director's are a couple and they are parents to a son and they worked on this film during lockdown so this need to embrace nature this desire to look at gorgeous views is integral to every shot in this film it feels just so organic and gorgeous and you want it to continue you don't want it to end you want to live there but obviously it is one of those things where it explores the cruelty of nature and the hardship of nature as well. Like you can be one of these people. I'm probably one of the city people that is in this film that comes up for the weekend to this beautiful house that they've built in the highest mountains and says, oh, I'd love to live here. I wouldn't really because winter does come and you've got to scrabble around and eat polenta throughout the winter and, and have no running water. So it does explore that push pull of, of the idea of this bucolic lifestyle and the reality of it as well. And it also explores Nepal as well, which I wasn't expecting when this film starts. I don't know about you. I thought this was purely going to be Italy, but it does travel further afield as well. But it is about sort of hiking and finding yourself and confronting yourself in nature. Well, I love the fact that it's very much about the ebb and flow of life, that you're taken in different directions. And these friends sort of spend many, many months, even years at times apart, but they're always there for each other. And when they come back to each other, they just settle down immediately into this deep friendship. And I don't think many films really explore a deep platonic love between men like this that you know you wouldn't have got this film made 10 years ago you know it the kind of era of toxic masculinity and all of that I, I think now we're beginning to get movies that can be a little bit more kind of heart on sleeve and open about just how profound two men can love each other absolutely wonderful I also like the fact that it was filmed in a square academy ratio because you you would kind of think with a film like this with the huge mountains that Alps that it may be in widescreen but you know it suits it because it's tight in with the characters the mountains obviously saw upwards instead of sideways so it fits the frame perfectly and it's just one of the most stunning films to look at I've seen for a very long time yeah and also like it starts in 1984 so that ratio really sort of leans into that feel of that era as well you really feel like it is the 80s and then as you travel through time with the friends you come up to sort of modern day as well so yeah it it you feel like you've been on a journey with these guys yeah absolutely I couldn't put it better myself. Doesn't that make you want to go and see this film? It's a really, really special film. And I love that they mentioned uh, that this film is shot in sort of a four by three or presented at least in a sort of square four by three aspect ratio. Uh, it really helps you appreciate what's happening on screen, I think. Do seek this one out. It looks and sounds wonderful on the big screen. From the eight mountains to... I mean, there's no right way to introduce this film, so let's go with to something completely different. Uh, this is the third film from Ari Aster, who you may know from Hereditary and Midsommar a few years back. He's back with a brand new film called Bo is Afraid, which stars Joaquin Phoenix and Patti Lapone and Nathan Lane and uh, Denny Minoche and, and a whole bunch of brilliant actors. And uh, Parker Posey, she's in this. It's, uh, yeah, and it's it's a visual spectacle. It's, it's, a, it's a lot of film. It's almost three hours long, but it absolutely flies by. And you see things in this film, which I assure you, you have never seen on screen 
before. But it's all grounded through this really amazing performance through Joaquin Phoenix. And yeah, there's lots of anticipation around this one. This opens on the 19th of May, and I was really pleased to see that Jane and Jamie had also seen this. So let's hear what they thought of the film. Are you at the airport? I'm on my way. I just... It's not safe, is it? What do you think I should do? I'm sure you'll do the right thing, sweetheart. So, yeah, our next film, Bo is Afraid, hugely anticipated from Ari Aster, who made What, Jamie? I mean, this guy's a bit of a genius. Well, he made Hereditary and he made Midsommar, which for my money are two of the best horror films of this century. Uh, No hyperbole there at all. I mean, the guy is a major new voice, a major filmmaker. But this is a departure for him in many ways. That He calls it a nightmare comedy. And it's three hours long, and it's about Bo, played by Joaquin Phoenix, who is a man who suffers severely from anxiety and depression to the point he can barely leave his house. And outside in the street, which is like a war zone crossed with a Hieronymus Bosch painting, there's kids with guns, there's a naked serial killer who runs up and down the street killing people, stabbing people. So even crossing the road to buy milk is traumatic for Bo. And we're never quite sure how much is in his head and how much is real. It really blurs the boundaries. But anyway, the premise of the film is his mother dies and he has to travel cross country to her funeral. So you have this man who rarely leaves his house suddenly having to go on this epic odyssey and all the disasters that befall him along the way. Yeah. Did you like it? I did like it. I I think it's a really big swing and not all of it works. I think at three hours, it can be a bit of an endurance test. I think a lot of people won't go with it and will find it maybe a bit pretentious or insular or whatever you want. The first 45 minutes, if you are anxious, it is like watching Uncut Gems. It's so stressful. And I loved that. But then it does go off into a world that I think if you love Ariasta and you love that sort of where will it go next, it's an odyssey with Bo and you go with it. But if you are easily irritated by this sort of thing, it could be something that's quite jarring. I think it would be really divisive. Some people will hate it. Some people will love it. I'm much closer to the love it camp. I think a lot of it works. I was kind of chuckling throughout in that kind of nervous way, bilious laughter. He talks about it. He's actually called it a Jewish Lord of the Rings. And he said that um, somewhat facetiously that the the whole odyssey of his film is just going to the guy's mum's house. So he's sort of tongue in cheek with that. His influences were very much literature. He was looking to Kafka, Lawrence Stern. But I also think for film lovers out there, they see a lot of synecdoche New York in it. There's also Scorsese's After Hours, which is very Kafkaesque. There's a bit of Oedipus Rex from Woody Allen in New York Stories. But despite all those kind of references, it is a very personal film. And that's what makes it for me. But Ari Aster is a nervous man. He does suffer from anxiety. If you interview him, he stutters a lot. He pauses a lot. You know, he obviously finds it very awkward to have that kind of social interaction. And he has said himself, if I didn't suffer from anxiety, I couldn't have made this film. And for me, a lot of it worked. And I came out of it thinking it was really good, actually, and really bold and inventive. And again, mad that a 35 million film 
is this adventurous you know people say oh they don't make films like this anything anymore that hollywood is all cookie cutter formulaic and i think this is a really big swing and people should go and judge for themselves i mean i totally agree you should go and see it whether like it or not it's it's one to see it's another a24 so you know you know what you that you're going to get something not run of the mill from them you want to have seen it you want to have seen there are quite a few ball gags <laughs> there are and uh, no spoilers but you know there's a, a particular sequence that you're like oh my god he's done that in the attic i'm yeah. glad i've seen this film to have seen that and witnessed that and also i just think it's the sort of film go with your mates and you are going to argue about this down the oh. pub after like people are going to love it people are going to hate it people are going to be like what's that about why did he do that no i think it means this oh no i think that was great oh no i don't and it's totally a film that you want to go and have a conversation about afterwards well the whole film is a complete freudian nightmare and it's kind of dripping in oedipal imagery and you know it really goes for it and what i found interesting is people say it's a departure and up at the top of this, you know, little discussion, I said it's a departure for Ariaster, but there's also a real through line that all of his films are about dysfunctional families. And I think horror and comedy are very much flip sides of the same coin. And, you know, they're both in horror and comedy, you're kind of setting it up and then you're having a punchline, be that a scare or a joke at the end of it. And I think, I mean, Ari Aster has actually said that he sees this as the third one in a trilogy with Hereditary and Midsommar. And I think they do share DNA. And even though it is different, it's also the same. And I find that really interesting. And it's a way to see, you know, the way that Joaquin Phoenix is just going out there, just doing it and doing the craziest roles. I really enjoy watching whatever he does. Well, apparently he put so much into it. There was one scene where he was off camera. It was his co-actor who was being filmed and he was just feeding the lines. But he put so much into it, he passed out even when he was off camera. <laughs> so that is Joaquin Phoenix all over. He is go for broke method man. Yeah, intense, intense, intense. That's him and this film. Well, thank you, Jane and Jamie. And just to follow on from that, on a bow is afraid note, Ariaster was actually at Picture House Central for two sold out screenings, two sold out previews of Bo is Afraid in late April. And uh, whilst he was in the building, we couldn't resist having a quick chat with him either. So here's Ariaster on Bo is Afraid. Hello, Ari. Welcome to the Picture House podcast. Thank you very much. Good to be here. At the time of recording, we just had you in the cinema last night in Screen One at Picture House Central uh, doing a Q&A to a sold out screening of Bo is Afraid. How did you find it? Great. You know, the audience was great. It, it, uh, there was a great enthusiasm in the room. Yeah. On the on the sort of the, the business end of it, that Q&A sold out so quickly. Like people, I think after Midsommar are really like, you know, what are we going to see next? And, and Bo has got this energy around it. Yeah, I think it's a record-breaking Q&A ticket sales event. That. <laughs> oh, yeah? Is that right? That's uh, exciting. Very cool. You saw it last night, you know, the audience in the cinema. What is it about the cinema for you? Are you a big film fan? Do you go to the cinema a lot yourself? Yeah, yeah. I go to the cinema several times a week. Uh, I live in New York, so there are a number of repertory theaters that I haunt. I love the Film Forum. I go to the Metrograph a lot. Lincoln Center, there's the Museum of the Moving Image, and, you know, the Quad, MoMA. It's a great city for watching movies. Absolutely. When I had a holiday in New York a couple of years ago, I just, I basically went to all of those cinemas on a little pilgrimage. There's a nice culture there, definitely. When you're making your films, do you sort of think about the, 
you know, the, like the big screen experience. Because in in Bo, it's, it's it's spectacular, but it's not just the visuals; it's the sound design. You know, there's there's a lot in there to, I think, like benefits from being seen in an auditorium. Yeah, I don't like the idea of this being watched in any other context. The, this was made for the big screen, and I especially just the sound design. Like so much work went into making total use of 5.1. But but then at the same time, I I mean, you put a lot of work into the stereo mix as well, but it's compromised. And, you know, and we did this in Atmos as well. And so if your theater has Atmos, that's the way to do it. And, you know, we converted it to IMAX. And so for me, that was a thrilling process. So yes, please see the film on the big screen. The screen we were in last night has a Dolby Atmos and like, yeah, I mean, it really, it really benefits. I love it when people use all of the, you know, all of the options. Why not? You know? Yeah, absolutely. The sound design is incredible. Also on screen, what I love about uh, this film is it, it's big in terms of, you know, what we see on screen. There's lots of extras. There's lots of background action. There's lots of detail in the film. And when you're writing, is, is that in the script when you're writing, you know, like um, the scenes where uh, Joaquin Phoenix is in the apartment and there's all of the detail on the street, lots of sort of background characters and uh, and, and that sort of universe, you know, what, what goes into the script for that level of detail? The script is pretty dense with those details, but by necessity, I had to eschew most of them, at least, you know, in terms of the script. So I, I had a big Google Doc of just world populating details whether they're background actors and I'm assigning them behavior or just signage, posters on the wall, band names, product names, product logos, graffiti. Yeah, all of that was mapped out either in advance or while we were just building the film. The process of creating those details never really stopped. They stopped when I was forced to stop yeah <laughs> yeah because it is um i when i was watching it I, I was like i need to i've only seen it once i'm looking forward to seeing it again because i'm sure there is much more in the background much more detail but it it just it's like it's a fully realized universe in a you know sometimes quite a quite a scary way but it's just it's really remarkable and i have like any filmmaker that you know does things practically has a lot of extras you know builds that set you know that's just sort of like a that's a way to my heart <laughs> Yeah, there's a term coined by Amwil Elder, chicken fat, that was used in reference to Mad Magazine, which is just, you know, packing the background with as many gags and details as possible. The effect of that is that, you know, viewers recognize how much love has gone into the the work and they kind of lean in and I, I, and, and, you know, hopefully, you know, it, there's like a mutual respect there. There's a, there's respect that the artist has for the audience and that hopefully, you know, is then reciprocated. That's at least my experience when I see work with a lot of chicken fat. It's a, it's a term that I actually was not familiar with until my friend Dan Klaus informed me because he, he saw the film and he said, there's a lot of chicken fat here. I love that. That's uh, that's remarkable. I think cinema is this wonderful magic trick. And when, you know, the, the more complicated it is, the, the, what we see on screen, you know, it's, it's like a more complex trick. And I think Bo's got so much of that sort of detail. It's similar to, you know, like watching a Stanley Kubrick film or something, you know, there's, like, there's lots going on on screen and it had to have been done in camera. Just big respect for doing that. Oh, thank you. I mean, I mean, it's also just more fun that way. Yeah, it's so much nicer to see what you're doing on the monitor. There are sequences here that we did with green screen that, you know, required that we build it all in post. And, you know, there's a joy in that too, but it's really, really, it just takes forever. 
there's such delayed gratification. Like when it's created in, in post, when it's CG, there's also a feeling of like, I, I just never know when to trust that it, it's textured enough. Like you go through often like 200 versions of the same shot, just pushing and pushing and pushing. And sometimes like your feeling for what's real gets so thrown where you realize, yeah, if I saw this and I knew that it was shot, this would be fine. But I'm so paranoid. I'm so afraid to approve something. Mm. And it's, and, and, you know, Bo is a big film, so there must be the number of times that has, you know, it, there's a lot to work for, I suppose. So, you know, it's going to be quite a while maybe before seeing that final. But there's a limit to how far we can go because the budget is still, for a film of this size, you know, it's, it's still a modest budget. Some people would bite my head off for calling the budget of this film modest, but it, we were stretching every dollar as far as we possibly could. Absolutely. I think you you feel that when watching the film, you feel like this is a, it's like precision engineered, you know, and the amount of craft that's got into it must, of course, you know, like require someone who, who can stretch the budget or, because it's still, it's an indie film, isn't it? You know, and, but it look, it holds it on a, on a Dolby IMAX and, a, and an Atmos screen, fills it well. I hope the spirit of the film is, is independent, but you know, I mean, it's hard to really, in all earnestness, call it independent when you have, there are filmmakers who are using their own money and no money at all. This isn't like a Kuchar brother movie or like a, or, or even what, you know, what Cassavetes was doing for the most part, you know, with, you know, with his own family, with his money. So I might not call it indie. I would say that I made it in freedom. No, I, I hear that. It's like independently spirited maybe, or yeah, adjacent, but remarkable as a piece. If anyone's seen the trailer or the poster, there's a lot of Joaquin Phoenix being wonderful in the film. But I, I, what really surprised me was the rest of the cast. You've got so many wonderful performers in there, and I was so pleased to see Denny Menashe on screen, a uh, really wonderful actor. We, as a company, we released his film Custody a few years ago, a really wonderful French I love thriller. Custody, yeah. Um, Custody is great. And uh, it's, it's always nice when he pops up in something. But I do wonder, how did you populate the supporting roles in the film? Because uh, everybody seems so perfectly sort of fit for their character and they deliver such a wonderful performance. Just a matter of going through the archives and remembering who I love, you know, and like people I want to work with and finding where they fit, if they fit. You know, there's still so many actors that I am dying to work with that I just haven't had the appropriate part for. Yeah, Denis was somebody who came to mind because I had seen Custody, the Xavier Legrand film, and it's and I found I found that to be an incredibly insightful performance of a bully. I've dealt with specifically one person in my life who was tied to one of the films. That character like really reminded me of that person. And I thought he showed amazing insight into the psychology of, of those people, especially the self-pity that a bully wallows in. So I thought that performance was amazing. And I wanted to work with him because of that. You know, Parker Posey, I've always wanted to work with. Nathan Lane, I've always wanted to work with. Patty Lapone, you know, when, when it occurred to me that she, that she could play the mother, just, you know, there was no kind of going back after having that epiphany. Amy Ryan is somebody who I just always wonder why there isn't just more of all the time. And, you know, I mean, uh, and God, I mean, Richard Kind and Stephen McKinley Henderson, who's just the greatest. And then, and then Haley Squires, you know, is somebody who I, I've, I've wanted to work with since I first saw her. I saw her in I, Daniel Blake. I just thought she was so indelible in that. I've seen her in, in several things since, but I, I think that she's just, uh, there's something so magical about her. 
Yeah, no, I, w- I was very, very lucky to have this cast. It was really a joy to work with all of them. Yes, it's always nice when like supporting characters are, you know, played by big actors and and they deliver a lot, you know, in a small amount of time on screen. But yeah, when Hades Squires, you know, appeared, I was like, whoa, okay. Yeah, the film kept giving as a film fan. Kylie Rogers is 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 really wonderful as Tony in the film. I really. I hadn't seen her in Yellowstone. I know that she is in that show, which I know is a beloved series for a lot of people. I, I still haven't watched it, but I, but she really blew me away. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today, Ari. It's, um, it was really great to have you at the cinema last night, and we're really excited to open Bo is Afraid at Picture House uh, in May. Thank you. I'm, I'm very happy to be here in London, and I'm excited for people to see this film. I, I love, love, love this movie. It's my favorite of all my films, and I do hope people will have the opportunity to see it uh, on the biggest screen available to them. Biggest screen with an audience. Definitely the way to do it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, thank you, Ari. It was very kind of him to talk to us. He was very jet-lagged and uh, and had just done these two sold-out Q&As, but it was really nice that he made time to speak to us, and we would love to have him back for whatever he makes next. I can't imagine where he's going to go from Bo is Afraid. But as I say, it's great with a crowd. It's really funny. I don't know if the reviews are really talking about that, but I think there's a lot of comedy in Bo is Afraid. And, uh, and yeah, do do go and, and see it in the cinema if you can. It's a really, really immersive film. Okay, our final film of May is much anticipated and maybe long in the works adaptation of the infamous Judy Bloom novel, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. Uh, this film also opens in mid-May. I haven't seen this one yet, but I've heard wonderful things. What I am excited by is that the film was made by Kelly Freeman Craig, who made a fantastic film a few years ago called The Edge of Seventeen, and I've been dying to see what she was working on next. It's been a few years since that film, and here she is. She's back uh, with Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. Please, do this one thing for me. Let me just be normal and regular like everybody else. Just please, 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 please. So, Jane, the last film we saw this week were Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, which, of course, is based on Judy Bloom's 1970 novel, which is a bit of a Bible to generations of adolescent or preteen girls and boys. You know, we're here over 50 years later, more than 50 years later, it's finally been adapted. I mean, is it worth the wait? Oh, my goodness. Yes. So uh, just in case you are not aware of what this is about, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret is about a young girl called Margaret, a New York girl who is on the cusp of adulthood. And she is forced to move house by her parents from the vibrant uh, Manhattan streets to New Jersey, where she forms a group of friends who are all obsessed with being older. They just want to get their periods. They want to get boobs. They want to get a bra. They want to get, you know, uh, kissing boys. They want to play spin the bottle. They want all of this amazingly fast. And at the same time in this film, Margaret's mother, played by Rachel McAdams, is struggling with what happens when you do become an adult woman. And the fact that that isn't all rosy and it isn't all great and it's not wonderful. So this whole film is a lovely sort of exploration of that push-pull between wanting something that you don't know what you really are asking for. And Margaret played beautifully by Abby Ryder Fawson, who is just this tremulous, gorgeous little spirit on film. 
I just think anybody can relate to this film. I don't I don't think it, I know you mentioned that it was mostly teenage girls that read this book, but obviously boys did as well, but I think anybody who's been through adolescence, we've all been there. We all understand the insecurities and the humiliations of that. And this reminded me a bit of 8th grade in that respect that it's a film that gets in your heart. You understand it entirely and that experience. And it's beautifully, beautifully done. Did you like it? I did like it very much. And the director, Kelly Freeman Craig, she actually made The Edge of 17. That was her debut. Also cracking. Cracking with Hayley Steinfeld, who we all know has gone on to great things. And that's a kind of bit of a companion piece in a way. So I think she was the perfect choice for it. And like you say, we've all been there. There's a scene in this film where the girls are queuing up at the chemist to buy sanitary pads. And the boy behind the counter, it would be a kind of boy their age, you know, till man or the man at the till. So, of course, it's that excruciating, awkward thing that when you're that age, it's so terrible. So I think it captured that really well. Now, I've read a few reviews, Jane. You know, most people love it, but the detractors have said that it slightly kind of shaves off the rougher edges of the book, but it's sort of a little bit more twee than Judy Bloom's novel. I mean, do you agree with that? I can see that as a criticism, but I do think that this is so kind and warm-hearted a film. It's kind to all of the protagonists. You know, every single child in that school, whether they're the nerd or the, the girl that's too tall or the hot boy, they all get their moment of empathy for the audience. So maybe it's just a kind film and Judy Bloom's book was a little bit more reality-based that, you know, we, we don't all view everyone in a kind fashion. But I do think if you like the book and you have warm feelings towards it, you're going to really love the film. And what did you think of Benny Safdie as the father? Oh, I loved him. Yeah, because we we all know him. What a departure. I mean, he's a great director. He made Uncut Gems, which obviously you mentioned earlier, and he plays lots of character roles. He was in Paul Thomas Anderson's last film. Yeah, he's really great. I mean, do you think he got enough screen time? What do you think? I would have liked to see more, but I do think that this story is about primarily women and and womanhood and so I felt that although he sort of got sidelined a little bit it was more about McAdams and her relationship with her parents her decisions as an adult and the sort of the fact that when children go through uh, adolescence it's as sort of weird and wonderful for the parents as well as the children and that she's on the same sort of journey of oh my goodness my little girl is now doing this and now wants a bra or now you know needs uh, sanitary towels um that I think was really important to focus on. So I would have liked to see more, but I'm not sad about it. So yeah, it sounds like we're in agreement with this one. That it's really, really good. Do you think it will appeal to kind of the younger generation of today as much as it would have to kind of preteens in 1970? I mean, is it still as relevant? I mean, are people still getting boobs and periods? <laughs> yes. So yes, it's very relevant to everybody. Are boys still wanting to play spin the bottle? Yes. You don't have to, you know, have read the book. You don't have to push this into modern day with social media and all of that. The emotions and the needs and the cravings and the desires are all something we have all been through or are currently going through. So I think it's one that everybody can relate to. Well, there we go. That brings us to the end of another edition of The Love of Cinema. Thank you so much to our guest film critics, Jane Crowther and Jamie Graham from Total Film. Now, what we like to do on this show is once we've reviewed the month's movies, once we've talked about that, whilst we've got two film critics in the house, we like to ask them what is currently playing at the cinema that they uh, they would recommend you seek out. Also, 
What are they looking forward to coming out later in the year? So, Jamie, uh, those are the films we can see coming up. What about what's still in cinemas that people might have missed? What's your recommendation? But my recommendation of films that are still out there is Evil Dead Rise, which I think just perfectly captures the DNA of Sam Raimi's original trilogy. It's the best Evil Dead film since 1987, since Evil Dead 2. It's super fun. It's super gory, but not in a really horrible kind of cringe and flinch way. It's that kind of over the top gore where it's crowd pleasing and you kind of cheer and punch the sky i think it's really imaginative loads of fun and even though it changes things up that it's no longer set in a wood cabin like we think of evil dead films this is in a condemned la apartment block it's still one location it's still claustrophobic and it just perfectly captures the tone of evil dead movies so if you're an evil dead fan or even if you just want a good sort of riotous friday night at the movies i would say evil dead rise or if you want to see an inventive use of a cheese grater. Oh, my God. What about coming up? What are you looking forward to? What are you excited about? Well, the film I'm really looking forward to, it plays in Cannes this month, and then it's coming out at the start of October. It's a new Martin Scorsese film, Killers of the Flower Moon, which is set in the Osage Nation, oil wealthy in the 1920s, and it's about a series of murders that took place and the birth of the FBI as well, investigating these murders. It stars Robert De Niro, Leonardo DiCaprio, who, of course, are Scorsese's main men from different eras, but they've never appeared together for Scorsese. So that's a big event. It's three hours, 26 minutes long, which all the Scorsese's kind of autumnal films, Wolf of Wall Street, Silence, The Irishman, they're all hefty running times. And I like that. I like the fact that he's flexing he's just immersing himself in these worlds and I can't wait I'm a huge Scorsese fan and I think this could be really special and a major awards contender so what about you Jane what what are you kind of recommending that's still out there that people can rush to see so I'm recommending a documentary called Little Richard I am everything this is about the rock and roll trailblazer Little Richard that was glimpsed in Baz Luhrmann's Elvis as somebody who influenced Elvis but really, this documentary delves into the dichotomy of Little Richard in as much as he was incredibly flamboyant. He enjoyed men and women. He wore makeup and women's clothes in a time that was so dangerous to do this. He was the original rock and roller. You know, sorry, guys, it wasn't Elvis, is what RuPaul says at one point. And his influence is huge. But also, later on in life, he discovered God and he really tampered down that sort of aspect of himself and this conflict within him that went on. But the amount of people that have been inspired by Little Richard is amazing. And a lot of them are in this documentary, including Mick Jagger and, you know, the um, the Rolling Stones and the Beatles who met him in Hamburg and were just overawed by him. So I just think he's one of those people that we all know a little bit about him, but we don't really realise just how important he is to music and that Harry Styles wouldn't be here with his stage outfits and his showmanship without Little Richard. So it's he's somebody who's influenced so many people. So that would be my pick. So, Jane, we've got hundreds of movies still to look forward to this year. Out of all of those many pleasures, which is the one you're most looking forward to? I would say probably Dune Part 2. 
I wasn't a Dune fan before the first film, but I was. I love Denis Villeneuve and I love his world building. And I thought that film was amazing and left me wanting more. And now we've just seen the trailer. It looks amazing. It's got an incredibly stacked cast. Christopher Wilkins joined Austin Butler, Florence Pugh, uh, Leia Sadu. We've got so many new people joining this world. And it's going to be, according to Denny Villeneuve, it's going to be like the main event. The first film was just the starter. This is the main course. I mean, if that doesn't intrigue you, I don't know what would. So Dune, which is out in November. And of course, we all know Austin Butler from Elvis. He was absolutely terrific. Now, they've just dropped all the pictures of him, haven't they, in this film? And he's completely bald. It's quite a shock. No hair at all. No eyebrows, no hair. And apparently is the combination of an Olympic swordsman crossed with a demonic Mick Jagger. I'm, I'm loving it. I'm there for wow. it. Buy a ticket immediately. I can't wait as well. So, Jamie, where can people listen to more of your musings or read more of your musings? Well, I'm editor-at-large of Total Film Magazine, monthly movie magazines, so my name's always popping up in there. I write a fair bit for Sunday Times Culture, SFX Magazine, and if you just want me waffling daily, talking absolute nonsense and hopefully a few little gems sprinkled in there, maybe, I'm on Twitter at Jamie underscore Graham 9. I am the editor of Total Film and I employ this fool occasionally. <laughs> but uh, I also have a podcast which is weekly called Inside Total Film, which you can find on all your podcasting platforms where we unwrap all of the new releases every single week. So do find us there to listen to more. Okay, some excellent choices there. Interesting, I think that is the second mention of Martin Scorsese's upcoming film The Killers of the Flower Moon in our most looked forward to. The film isn't out until October, so I'm wondering how many critics who are guesting on the podcast will say Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon in their outros. We will find out. That'll be a fun game for me and the listeners. Okay, but that truly is the end of the podcast for this month. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for making it all the way to the end. We really love putting this podcast together and it's always nice when we know that listeners hear bits like this. They hear the thank yous. Uh, So do appreciate that. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. All of those feedback and the reviews, if you could leave a few few kind words uh, as well. It does help other people see the show and it is hugely, hugely appreciated. We couldn't make this show without Kobe at Stripped Media or without our excellent editor, Maddie Searle. Thank you, Kobe. Thank you, Maddie, for working on the show, for, for putting it all together. Hugely, hugely appreciated. Big thank you to our special guests, uh, Jalmari Helander and Ariaster, writers and directors of uh, Sisu and Bo is Afraid, respectively. Uh, and once again, a big thank you to Jane Crofer and Jamie Graham uh, from Total Film and, uh, and other places. Two wonderful film critics uh, for joining us and uh, like I say big thank you for for listening and do enjoy whatever you end up watching at the cinema in May there's a lot of great stuff as I said earlier in the show I'm going straight into Guardians of the Galaxy volume 3 and uh, and I'll definitely be checking out Are You There God it's me Margaret I think that's about it that wraps us up have a great month folks and we will see you right back here for our June edition of the show in a few weeks time if you do subscribe to the feed we might occasionally have a special interview or or, or two to drop Uh, so yeah check us out on your podcatchers give us a subscribe and we'll see you again very soon 